Will you bow with me just with a arrow prayer? Blessed Father, again, we thank you. We just pray now as we dive into your word, let us be attentive. But Father, we just pray that we may be all of us, not just, uh, not just the congregation, but myself also. May we be those who seek to hear and, and see how we can put your word into action. May we be those who are more than just hearers of your word, but doers also. So Father, we just pray that we may be students of your word. Keep us fixated, keep the distractions at bay. In Satan's blessed name, amen. The world is absorbed with change. Different groups in our society, they agitate for change of some policy in this world or some action or agitate for some situation. People, of course, going into the start of a new year, people make New Year resolutions as to how and what they're going to change about themselves in this incoming year. People obsess with change, changing themselves, changing their circumstances, changing their appearances. Uh, millions, if not billions of dollars are spent on people trying to change themselves to conform to how and who they want to be. And as we look out into this world, as we look out into this society, which is so obsessed, so absorbed with change, so fixated with it, we ought to ask ourselves a question. Why? Why is this world so obsessed with change? Have you ever asked that question? Well, here's an answer to it. Because we understand that there are problems in this world. We understand that there are problems in this world. This world and our experience of this world is not as we believe it should be. We try to change the problems that we perceive exist and are the cause of our imperfect life, thinking that if we change certain things in our life, whether it's appearance, whether it's circumstances, whether it's something in society, that our lives will improve. They'll get better. It will resolve everything. It will make the world, or at least, at the very least, our lives, much one step closer to perfection. But then as anybody who's chased after and tried to change their lives would, and which is probably most of us, would attest, as you change one thing, something else arises. We go through life constantly going and trying to resolve a, chain and a problem after problem as to what we think that if, surely if we change this, our life will become better. But everything as you chase after change after change, everything at, at best is nothing more than a band-aid solution. Life becomes little more than a series. If you all know that, familiar with that illustration where you're in a, a rowboat or a wooden boat trying to plug a hole in the boat of water, and as you put your thumb in the block or put something in the block, stop one hole, 
of water, another hole appears. Sadly, this is a reality for so many people, and, and particularly as we attempt to change by pruning away that which we think is the problem. But when we do that, when we try to prune away the things that we believe are the problem, we fail, often fail to understand that at the end of the day, what we're often just pruning are just the leaves. We're never dealing with the main problem. We're never dealing with the roots. Now, as we return to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and again, we're up to Matthew 9, particularly verses 9 to 13, and like I always exhort and always encourage, let's always be like the noble Bereans, keeping the Word of God open and testing whatever is said against the Word. But as we return to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, that's what we'll be looking at, the root of your problem, the root of my problem. That is, unless this is dealt with, unless this particular problem is dealt with, all you're going to be doing is putting Band-Aid after Band-Aid on your problems without dealing with the cause. Now, again, we'll be going through verses 9 to 13 this morning, but particularly I want, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 13. Just keep that in mind. And for those here who are always interested in what the structure of this morning's sermon will be, it will, uh, I've got three points. Yes, it's a nice three-point sermon. The first is the coming of Christ. The second is the calling of Christ. And lastly, the cherishing of Christ. Now, before we dive into these verses, it's helpful to remember where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew, where we're at up up in these verses. Now, Jesus had just been ministering in Capernaum. He's been there for a while, and he's brought healing to many people. He's come and brought healing, and he's also driven out demons. He had calmed the storm when he was in the boat with the disciples and sleeping, and they were up all upset and worried about the storm, and he rebuked the storm and said, why are you fearful? Again, he, he had been doing things and showing his disciples and, and his power as well as his faithfulness. In the immediate verses, right immediately prior to verses 9 to 13, Jesus heals the paralytic, the man who faced Paralysis, And if you remember the last sermon I I preached on Matthew, I I actually struggled saying paralysis, but now, see, I I can say it properly. Paralysis, yes. So, um, but all these these things, they pointed to what Jesus was doing, to heal the miraculous healings, the casting out of the demons, the calming of the storm. All these demonstrated the authority, authority that Jesus had over both the natural and the supernatural. But also, and we see these in the immediate verses prior, in uh, verses 1 to to 8, that Jesus also has the ability to forgive sin, which remains the domain of God alone. Again, testifying as to who Jesus actually is. But so enters now the scene Matthew, the tax collector. 
Now, Matthew had been an employee of Herod Antipas. He was a ruler of that territory of Capernaum and, um, and a bit more territory beyond that. And his precise role, as the name gives, tax collector, was to collect taxes on behalf of Herod, but really the Romans. Rather, rather he was not one of those over-glorified bureauc- uh, bureaucrats which go after your income tax. It's, not, it's not, uh, probably not a fair, uh, a fair assessment or parallel to compare him to your ATO officer. But Matthew's, Matthew's precise role here was likely an individual who collected tariffs. He collected income and taxes on trade which was passing through. Uh, particularly from as they went from Syria to Egypt. Although really taxes at this time, at this point in time, first century Judea, and, uh, was really a, a particular uh, period where there was taxes on crops, there were taxes on imports, on exports, and for using, using roads tax, use, going crossing a bridge tax, entering, uh, entering a, ma- a major city of commerce, Tax. There were taxes all around, but again, Matthew was set up in a particular booth, likely collecting t- taxes on trade which was passing by. Now, some of you may be aware that tax collectors at the first, well, let's face it, tax collectors have never been popular. Who wants to give tax? Who wants to pay tax? But tax collectors within the first century were deeply unpopular. Tax collectors were those who were looked down upon in Jewish society, and not simply because they collected taxes. It was because of who they collected taxes on the behalf of. You see, tax collectors in in Israel at this point in time were those who were seen as collaborators. They were those who were seen as they were seen as collaborating with the Roman oppressors, with the Roman conquerors. They were seen as traitors to Jewish identity. And so as such, not only were they already deeply unpopular for taking people's money, but more than that, they were seen as collaborators and sympathizers with the Romans. And many, of course, in, uh, tax collectors at this time, in order to make money, they, they, there was a whole sense where they themselves would charge more than the tax rate was at the period of time so that they could, they could enrich themselves, they could make more money, so they, they would ta- collect the taxes on behalf of the Romans, make sure that's sent off, but they've charged higher so they've been able to fill their own pockets. And many of these tax collectors, again, people went into this particular field, this particular vocation, because it was a way of of enriching, self-enrichment. It was a way of amassing wealth. It was also a way of financial stability to make sure that, you know, you want to get by and look after your family. And if you're chasing after money, well, tax collecting was seen as a fairly profitable endeavor. However, the, the constant contact that tax collectors had with Gentiles, the constant contact that they, and work that they did, including on the Sabbath, meant that they were also seen as those who were unclean and those who disobeyed God for their own desires. 
And all of this, the fact that they, let alone they were tax collectors, but they were collaborators with the Romans. They were those who, again, dealt with the Gentiles, didn't really obey Jewish purity laws. There was a stigma attached to tax collectors. They were not those type of people you would generally spend time with for the upright and holy Jew. But the reality is, like the parable in Luke 18, when you have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the tax collector standing far off beats his chest and, have, and says uh, upward to heaven, have mercy, God have mercy upon me, a sinner, they were acutely aware of their status. They were aware that they were not liked. They were aware that, the, the, that most Jews looked down at them. They knew who, in many respects, who they were. They understood their estate. They understood their condition. Matthew, just as much as the others, knew who they were in the eyes of God and their desperate need. But for the tax collector, for those people who wanted to chase money, those who wanted to chase, uh, again, financial stability at the cost of how they ought to do things in accordance to the rules and regulations of the Pharisees. Well, the regulations and laws of the Pharisees were seen too difficult to abide by. The law of God was just too much, and really for the tax collector, well, their their state of affairs was that, well, they were relegated at the bottom of the social uh, chain, and so be it. That was their way of life. They never saw themselves as being able to really overcome that. And why even try? It was just too difficult. Yet, as we see in our verses this morning, despite the stigma that was attached to tax collectors, despite the stigma which was attached to Matthew, Jesus comes to Matthew. Uh, Some of you may be aware Matthew is called Levi or Levi, depending on how you want to pronounce it, uh, in the other Gospels. But he comes, Jesus comes to a known sinner. He comes to an individual who is held in low repute by God-fearing Jews. And in many respects, this is an example of what we read. Uh, This is a beautiful reflection, rather, of what we read later in verses 12 to 13. Because by Jesus going to a known sinner like Matthew, when we look at verses 12 to 13, let's turn there. And when he goes, Now when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. Indeed, Jesus did come to the sinner. Jesus did go and approach the sinner. And we see in, in, we see that in these verses that we just read, which was in response to the Pharisees, precisely why Jesus came. And that he came because there was a problem that he came to address. He came not for the healthy, he came not for the righteous, but for those who knew they were sick. Those who knew they were sinners. 
You see, Jesus came to resolve the most significant problem that exists. The sickness that plagues all humanity. And that is sin. It wasn't a minor issue that could be changed by their circumstances. It wasn't a surface, uh, uh, something that a surface change in behavior would fix. It wasn't something that a change in diet would help. It wasn't something that could be fixed by psychology. It wasn't something that could be fixed by just improving the economy or by removing poverty. No, this was a deep-set issue that affected and permeates all humanity that needs to be treated. The way that we were initially and originally were designed has been marred. The way of perfect living, which is through communion with God, is no longer achievable for us. And why is that? Because we are wrecked with sin. Our hearts are corrupted, impure, not good. We don't desire the right things. Those things which align with God we run away from. Instead, we desire self-gain. What's best for us is seen as the height height of what we ought to do, often at the very expense of others. We shift blame to other people. We want vengeance against those who we perceive as wronging us. We lash out at people. We're entitled. We don't like people telling us what we can do or what we can't do. This is why we need to remember that the biggest problem that exists for mankind isn't something that's external to us. The biggest problem is us. And because we're the problem, because of the way that we are captivated and enslaved to sin, to things which are opposed to God, there is no way at all that mankind left to their own devices would be able to overcome this problem. Because we're corrupted to our innermost core. It's not our actions which corrupt us. It's that we're already corrupted that our actions are therefore corrupt. And anybody who, and trust me, I have met over the years people, professed Christians even, who believe in their own mind that they're good and perfect if you ever believe that you're good and perfect, let me ask you to uh, let me ask you to talk to those people nearest and dearest to you as to whether you're without blame or without problems, and get them to give you an, an honest answer. I'm sure they'll tell you that you're not as good and pure as you probably would think. But there's a statement that's often thrown around. And it's one that you've probably heard many times. But they're only human. They're only human. But ironically, 
That statement is a reflection and an acknowledgement of humanity's imperfection and the fact that humanity is flawed and has problems. They're only human. It shows that we're not perfect. It shows us we're not good. It shows us we're not right. But rather, when they use a, when a statement like they're only human, which I've heard many times, it's an acceptance. It's a resignation to the existence of the problem with a flawed understanding that there's nothing that can be done about it. It's just the way I am. I'm only human. And so rather than, rather than dealing with this core main issue that needs to be dealt with, humanity instead cha- chooses instead to chase after everything else and try to change everything else. It tries to prune away every other problem it can come across and try to put band-aids on, thinking that the, pruning these things will somehow make us more perfect and make the world perfect, but we're not dealing with the innermost foundation or problem the most significant one that exists. And this problem that exists for all humanity is graver and more significant than we think. Even if we know what sin is, even if we know the depths of sin and that we hate sin, sin is always worse than we think. Because we have a tendency, don't we, um, brothers and sisters, to to often uh, minimize our sin in our own lives. We fail to see it for what it is. But the problem of sin has affected not only our relationships with each other and has caused so much pain and grief in this world, but it has put us totally at odds with our Creator. Instead of, again, instead of following His ways, we desire and want to follow things our way. And often we chase after those very things which tend to hurt us, which actually are detrimental to our uh, to our lives. Despite the, uh, we chase after these gle- gleaming objects, thinking that they'll somehow be our salvation, they'll somehow be uh, make our lives improved. But when in fact they hamper our true prosperity, we chase after all these supposed solutions to our perceived problems, not realizing that unless we deal with the, pro- the main problem that exists, all else is for naught. All else is for naught. You look into, of course, into this world, and they will offer plenty of solutions as to how you can fix up your problems. Self-help, uh, guides uh, and gurus, uh, ways to, of course... Um, Again, like I've said, change is a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar industry. But chasing after all these things without dealing with the main cause, at the end of the day, is foolishness. Because this problem, this selfish love of oneself above all else, this impurity where we lash out at one another, where we attack one another in our minds, in our speech, it will not stand. It will not. Because one day, each and every person will need to give an account for what they've done with their lives. 
And guess what, brothers and sisters? Saying we're only being human will not count as a proper defense. It will not count as a justification. But what Jesus is saying here, Matthew 9 and verse 13, for I did not come, or I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners, is that Jesus himself has come to provide the resolution for the sin problem that exists. As a physician has come, or has come to treat those who are sick, those uh, who see the need of having their ailment removed, Christ has come, to quote the Apostle Paul, to save sinners. And in these verses here, this is where we find Jesus. This is where we find Jesus. For the right place for the healer to be, the right place for the, the divine physician to be, is where people, need, uh, uh, where people who uh, need to be healed are. Jesus has come for those who are sick, including a sinner called Matthew. Matthew 9.9, 9, it, it goes on, that uh, it states, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Jesus calls Matthew. Being that, being that Jesus had been in Capernaum for a while and doing his ministry, it is likely that Matthew knew of Jesus' ministry. It is possible that Matthew had interacted with Jesus previously. However, Jesus calls Matthew, saying to follow him. As he has come to call those who are sinners. And how does Matthew respond? He got up and followed. Matthew knew the condition of his soul. He knew he was a sinner. And seeing his desperate need, Matthew, who's... If you read the Gospel of Matthew, if you read any of the Gospels... You'll note that Matthew is a man of few words. In fact, you will never actually see the Apostle Matthew say anything in, the, in any of the Gospel accounts. He's a man of few words uh, who, who write, who's writing this Gospel account of what had happened. And even here, because he's a man of few words, he just says he got up and followed. Luke, the physician Luke, the doc, uh, Dr. Luke, in his Gospel, actually fleshes it out a bit. Whereas in Luke 5, 28, he says, So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Again, Matthew's being modest here, but he forsook everything for the sake of Christ. Upon Christ's calling, he went. Now, it is of note that to notice that Jesus doesn't go to Matthew and, and, um, and, and doesn't call Matthew to follow him once he's prepared himself. He doesn't call Matthew once he has reformed himself to become more outwardly good. Now, Jesus calls him at the particular stage at where he's at. Because Jesus always extends his accepting love first. Jesus is, the, again, the shepherd who seeks the lost sheep. He is the father 
seeking lost sons. This calling that Matthew receives is is reflective of the calling that Jesus has to all people who would listen. The very same instruction is given to all who have an ear to hear, and that is this, follow me. It's not about changing who you are first before coming to him. Rather, it's come as you are and God will change you. And we see that for Matthew, his response here to Jesus' instructions, to Jesus' comment to follow him, is that he follows Jesus. Continuing verses 10 to 11, it states, While he was reclining, At the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now in Matthew 5, uh, sorry, Luke 5, when it's talking about this same encounter, it talks about the fact that this house is indeed Matthew's house. That's where the banquet was happening. And oh, what faith Matthew had. Because Jesus had called him, he followed, and then he decided to hold a feast for Jesus. And he invited his friends, tax collectors and other people of ill repute who were stigmatized in society. He caused them to gather and to meet Jesus. Matthew's faith here is seen through his deeds because he got up and he gave up everything for Christ. And then he... and, and then. Inviting all his friends to hear Matthew, uh, sorry, to hear Jesus. He, he, uh, he invites his people because he wants them to know Jesus as well. And it doesn't take long for the main criticizers of Jesus' ministry, the, the Pharisees, to find a problem here. Where the Pharisees, instead of approaching Jesus directly, what do they do? They, they seek to shame his disciples because they go, to, uh, they go to them and they point out that why is your teacher eating with such people? See, the Pharisees themselves, they were people who were proud of their own righteousness. They were proud of their own merit, of their own ability, of their own talent. And Jesus tells them in, in verses 12 to 13, it is not those who are well, who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, the Pharisees understood themselves as righteous men. They did not associate with those people who were stigmatized, who were seen as sinful people. There was no compassion from them towards those people who were stigmatized, who were lower down the social ladder, for those who they saw as being morally beneath them. There was no attempt to help them. There was no attempt by the Pharisees to minister to them, to point them in a merciful way to God. Instead, Jesus rebukes them elsewhere that they did not even lift a single finger to help those people in who they were instructing and teaching. 
And in rebuking them here, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. And it's a common rebuke. If, you know, if you've heard of this, I desire your heart, not sacrifice. I desire you know, your love, your tender and faithful love, not outward actions. That is a common motif. It's a common theme that we see throughout the Old Testament, particularly the minor prophets. But this common rebuke to the Israelites, to the Pharisees, is again a reminder that they cared not about God. They cared not about following and faithfully being obedient to God. They cared more about doing the outward actions. They cared more about how they would be perceived. They cared more about, again, how they would have been perceived than the reason as to why they were doing it. They thought that they were righteous. They thought they were on good terms with God. But further could they be from the truth? Because the fundamental, the fundamental problem for the Pharisees was that they were blind and they were deaf. They could not see themselves for who they were they could not see who they, they truly were. They, they, they could not see their hearts. They, rather than they compared themselves to others. They compared themselves to the uh, tax collectors. They compared themselves to those who were morally beneath them. And when they compared themselves to them, they went, well, in comparison to this guy, I'm doing quite well for myself. And they thought that that was sufficient. That that was good enough. And so when Christ comes, when Christ came, the call of Christ to follow me is extended to each and every person who will listen, who will but listen. But the Pharisees, they don't see their need. As Matthew Henry, the 18, uh, late, six, uh, late 17th, early 18th century um, theologian and commentator puts it, those who suppose their, uh, their souls to be without disease will not welcome the spiritual physician. And indeed, they did not. They did not welcome Jesus. And this is why Jesus states, I did not come for the righteous, but sinners. This is why Jesus is telling them, go and meditate and think on Hosea 6.6. 6. He's not saying go and think of it, but think of it right now. Hosea 6.6. 6. Jesus is telling them to examine themselves. To put themselves up in front of a mirror, a, a theological uh, a mirror, and to see themselves for who they truly were. That they weren't righteous. That they would see their need and come to Christ that they would see their sinful state, that they would see that their works are not actually good works, that they think they are, that they are little better than those people that they condemn and look down at. Again, Romans 3 tells us that there is no one righteous, no, not one. All have forsaken God, all have run astray. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. This is why when Jesus states, I have come, not for the righteous, but the sinner, there is no one who is truly righteous. 
He has come for all sinners, if only they see the state of their soul. Yet these are the two responses to Christ when Christ calls people to follow him. There will be those who, like Matthew, who see their need and they go to him, willing to forsake all for the sake of Christ. Willing to become poor by the standards of the world, by the unsurpassing riches of Christ. But then there are also those who will ignore this call. Because they see no need. They see no point. The problems they believe that exist in this world can be fixed by their own hands. And so they'll constantly look to resolve all the problems by their own works, by their own ability. And so when the core of Christ comes forward to follow me, what do they do? Or they prefer to follow themselves. All the way to the judgment and the damnation that they will incur for it. Because the worst lie, brothers and sisters, that people can ever hear and believe is that everyone is healthy and in no need for a remedy to sin. That the central problem remains unaddressed while we attempt to somehow fix up all the smaller issues that exist and think that that somehow will fix everything when it won't. Because the problems in this world will continue to exist because sin abounds. Pruning is not enough. Because on whose standards and whose conditions are we saying and dealing that dealing with these minor problems in our lives to make our lives better will somehow fix the problem? It won't. It's not certainly not on God's standards, certainly not on God's conditions. We delude ourselves into thinking, oh, if we just change certain things, maybe our diet, maybe our circumstances, our lives will improve. Maybe if we rally rally, uh, our government to introduce a new policy, maybe we remove poverty, the world will become perfect overnight. We'll be able to hold hands, sing kumbaya, and that's that. No. While sin exists... The main problem exists. And it can only be dealt with by the one who has come to remedy the problem. But this is the wonderful thing in these verses. They show the heart of Christ. Christ calls all who have ears to listen to him. He has come as a divine physician to heal those who are sick. Those of us who recognize that we are indeed sinners. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, puts it this way. The first thing is needful. In order to have an interest in Christ is to feel so deeply our own corruption and be willing to come to him for deliverance. We are not to keep away from Christ as many ignorantly do, because we feel bad and wicked and unworthy. We are to remember that sinners are those he came into the world to save, and that if we feel ourselves such, it is well. 
Happy is he who really comprehends that one principal qualification for coming to Christ is a deep sense of sin. See, Christ beckons and calls all of us to go to him, not to shy away, not to believe that we're not good enough or not worthy enough to go to Christ. No, Christ constantly exhorts throughout Scripture that he will give each and every one of those who follow him rest. That they will find room and board with Christ. That he will never turn away any person who goes to him, who see their need and their limitations and imperfections and go, I need Christ because I have this problem that exists in that I am a sinner and only he can resolve it. No, we are called to come to him and not shy away. And why is that? Because he first came to us. Christ has so tenderly came to us. He has become the sin bearer by dying on that cross to remedy the most significant problem that we will ever have. And we, like Matthew here, Accord to follow him by faith. Christ has come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Not for those who believe and think that they are well, but for those who are sick. Jesus is, and how wonderful it is, a friend of sinners. You may, right now, you may believe that you are too great a sinner. That you may feel too unworthy, too unable to approach or follow him. But as great as you believe your sin is, Christ is a greater savior and a greater friend. And all those who trust in him, who, who follow him, they will never have that trust misplaced. All who have faith in him will see that Christ is faithful. There is no way that we can change ourselves and perfect our own lives here in any degree that will resolve the the greatest problem that we face. But the great news is Christ has remedied the problem. And for all those who follow him, all the other problems Yes, they will exist. Yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, sin remains in this world. But one day, sin will be blotted out. All in this world will pass away. And new creation will come ushered in. And there will not be a weeping. uh, There will not be any weeping. There will be no tears. Sin will be vanquished in its finality. But the biggest problem that exists of our own sin and our, the chasm that exists between us and God has been resolved through Christ. But the best thing that we can do, the best thing that we can remember, that as we live in this fallen world, is that we are the greatest problem. 
The problem isn't external factors. The problem is not the set of circumstances you may find yourself in. The problem is us. How often we forget in a church that we are a hospital. We should never be surprised to find the fact that there is sin in the church. We should be those which are quick to deal with it, and, but we are but sinners. You might have noticed uh, this sermon I titled A Sinner Called Matthew. But the reality is, this is amp- it's quite right to say that this, there's also a sinner called Brett. We're all sinners. We're all our own greatest enemy. But we have a friend in Christ. A surety that we can always trust in. And for us who follow Christ, for us who say, yes, I follow, I profess and follow Christ. I pray that we will never minimize our own sin and always understand our own neediness of Christ. And may that never change. To quote Ryle again, Sinners we are in a day we first come to Christ. Poor, needy sinners. We continue to be as long as we live, drawing all the grace we have every hour out of Christ's fullness. Sinners, we shall find ourselves in the hour of our, of our death and shall die as much indebted to Christ's blood as in the day we first believed. Brothers and sisters, in a world where we live, which is so obsessed with change, which is so obsessed in thinking that we can fix our own problems by pruning the leaves and not dealing with the root matter. May we, be, may we remember what Pink says here, where A.W. Pink states, the great mistake made by most Christians is hoping to discover in themselves that which is found in Christ alone. We cannot fix ourselves, but we have a great fixer. We have a great saviour. We have a great friend. When Jesus says, come, follow me, will you follow? My hope is that you will. That we are all willing to forsake all things for the sake of Christ who is better by far. And as we focus upon Christ, everything else in this world will seem strangely dim. Because that is the true solution to our greatest problem. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Blessed Father, we again thank you for the fact that we're able to call upon Christ. We thank you for the fact that you so loved the world that you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Father, we just pray that that recognizing that this core to follow,
follow Christ is to all that we may be those who not only heed the call, but be those who point others to the call also. Recognizing that the only way to fix the problems in this world is Christ. Father, that as much as we can do to prune, to change things, and there's nothing wrong with making certain changes, but that nothing will deal with the root issue other than believing in Christ, believing in the one who has come for the sinner, who has come for the sick. And Father, we are sickly people in need of your grace through Christ. And so, Father, we just pray that as those here this morning, as those who profess Christ, Father, help us to keep looking at Christ as our greatest need, our greatest friend, our greatest Savior, and that our problems can be found and solved in him. Maybe not now, but all of them will be resolved in eternity. But Father, I just pray for anyone here who is yet to heed the call. Father, may they just may they hear the call. Not see, not be like the Pharisee. Not be those who don't see their need, who trust in their own righteousness, who trust in their own merit, their own ability, who keep chasing after change, after change, after change, thinking that will resolve things. Father, may they see that this is impossible. Doing such is just building on the wrong soil. But that true change can be found in Christ. And Father, we just pray that each and every one of us here this morning may call on him as friend, as Lord, as Savior. In your son's most blessed name. Amen.